Welcome to this podcast, one in a series where we capture and share the stories of emerging entrepreneurs from London Business School. My name is Jeff Skinner, and over the years, I've had the privilege of working with hundreds of LBS students and alums, all plotting new ventures. Uh, these podcasts are a way of sharing that fun and the learning with others, wider community. And today I'm in conversation with John Witt and Taj Kamarapur, two of the co-founders of Stotals. Welcome. Thanks for having us. So perhaps, John, you can sum up what Stotals does and who it's designed to help. Absolutely. Yeah, well, Stotals is um, really, as a business, our core mission and what we're after with our North Star is to unlock this potential of business and government working better together more broadly. And so really where we've started on that front is by opening up public procurement to more players. And what that looks like is, I mean, in a world where governments are trying to be more and more transparent, they're pushing out data all over the place uh, with actually these ironic outcomes in a way, right? In efforts to be more transparent, they've actually created more fragmentation in the data. And with more fragmentation, there's more murkiness. So what that leads is confusion on the private sector side. All of these private sector suppliers who are trying to get into the government and the public sector they don't have one single place where they can actually get a clear view of the public sector. So that's really what we're honing in on from the very beginning, is bringing clarity, focus, and simplicity uh, to the public sector using a software as a service that brings together all that data and paints a clear picture of the public sector. I mean, this is a very different business to those that we've featured before, and that's quite deliberate. I mean, you're B2B, and in your own words, I think that when you explain what you do on the surface, it sounds like quite a boring business, but it isn't. And it clearly inspired you. I mean, how did you get into this? What was the, what was, what was a source of inspiration? Why did you think this would be exciting for the two of you? Absolutely. Well, for Taj, Carson and myself, unfortunately, Carson, Carson couldn't be here today. But I mean, from the outside looking in, a lot of people, like you said, think this is boring. And actually, we absolutely love that because we know the ins and outs of this business based on our past experience and, and the, the shared challenges that we'd seen from our previous careers. And as we've gotten more and more into it, the intrigue and the provocativeness of the challenges that we're coming across keep us on our toes every single day. So for us as co-founders, I mean, it's one of the most interesting things that we could ever have been a part of. Yeah, just, just to add some color to that, when you think of the scale of these problems, it's a lot bigger than like, you know, blockchain for walking your pet or something. You're talking about problems that affect every single citizen in, in any of these countries. Um, examples that come to mind are these big private companies that serve the public sector, like Carillion going out of business with millions and millions still open in contracts. Or you think of Seaborne Freight. Uh, they had these contracts for ferries. They had never owned or operated a ferry before. Bringing transparency to that and, and trying to fix that mess is a massive problem. And to us, quite a sexy problem to fix. And you're thinking about, you know, everybody's tax money and how that's being spent. And yeah, it's it's a big problem and, and it's a, a cool one to solve. How did it come to you? I mean, is this something, I mean, you, you spoke earlier, John, about the background, what you presumably did before mm-hmm. you, you even came here. Yeah. But was this a kind of a light bulb moment or was it much more of a sort of a, a slow hunch, that something that gradually grew on you and the, and the enormity of the opportunity uh, and problem over time? So John and I explored a, a similar idea uh, in late 2018, and we, as we were kind of going through that idea, we started thinking more about our backgrounds and, and some of the pains that we had felt. And in my case, I had worked on a, on a procurement startup, and we actually had issues. Our, let's say our the death of that business was when we ran into government contracts because we couldn't re- figure out what was real and what was just a compliance exercise. Like, what's a 
tender that you know someone just printed out and sent when they actually know exactly who they're going to give it to. I'll let John give his background, but he had experiences auditing and 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 looking at companies that were trying to get into this market and and had the exact same experience. So when we were talking about stories and anecdotes, we were like, oh my God, this is not something that just happens in South America or North America. This is something that happens everywhere in the world. And if we can crack this, it's it's going to affect a lot of lives. Yeah, and, and from my background, right, and Taj mentioned it, I was an auditor. I used to audit government agencies and specializing in procurement process controls, probably one of the most riveting arenas <laughs> of work that uh, you can get involved in. But more and more as I've become detached from my earlier experience, I realized how valuable that was in shaping the way I think about these kinds of problems. And as more and more of those stories that we've all had from our past surfaced, we began to kind of gravitate towards one another during the time at London Business School and during our MBA. And that's what really became the nebulous of what we started working on. So from my past, I remember walking down the deep, dark halls of public procurement offices, literally tripping over these boxes of files that are containing checklists and data in manual formats, right? And all of a sudden, we were sitting there firsthand watching this transition of paper-based systems and processes moving toward more machine-readable data uh, and this wave of machine-readable data coming out. And for us, we see that wave kind of right now. Like that's, that's why we're hitting this right now, because we talk about this all the time. The public sector is one of those arenas where it's one of the, the last frontiers and kind of the one areas that's yet to be hit by digitization. So that's where we see ourselves positioned right now. Auditor turned entrepreneur, not a phrase I yeah. often mutter. <laughs> Good times. And how did you come together? I mean, I mean, you, you didn't know each other before you, you came here. So what was the, the mechanism? How did you engage with each other? Was it through one of the programs here or yeah, just because you were like-minded? Mm. Yeah, so it's, it's actually interesting. It's a bit of destiny and a bit of, you know, planning. I think the three of us came to the MBA. We, we all three of us were in the same class for the MBA here here at London Business School. We we're in the same stream actually. And I think the three of us pretty much came to the MBA with the idea that you know, we were going to meet our possible co-founders or or people that we'd want to work with. And then I guess the fate part is we were in the same stream. We all became friends. We were part of the same friends group. We actually went on a couple trips together. Yeah, and and you know, sailing the Greek Isles. Exactly. The, the, the rest. <laughs> Trying to talking sell. about. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Public procurement. Public procurement. Exactly. And and you said it wasn't the first thing you tried. Uh, you, you had another great idea first, and that kind of. Yeah. In in the great tradition of entrepreneurs, you know, the the first pancake is always a throwaway. Absolutely. I, yeah. I guess it's almost two. I mean, I'll let John go oh, into yeah. detail. Well, I mean, I think for all of us, Carson, Todd, and myself, we use the first year of the MBA as very much like, look, this is exploration time. Like, again, throw as much spaghetti against the wall as possible, um, exploring different ideas from our past, ideas that we had. So the first one that Taj and I kind of rallied around towards the end of the first year was basically a, a goal and habit management platform for individuals, but then kind of switching over into how do we sell this into companies because um, kind of goal-based motivation actually produces farther outcomes in employee engagement. So we went through, what did we go through? Um, LBS Launchpad, some of the programs, and quickly discovered some of the things we didn't like about that idea or about that vein in, in kind of this B2C trying to get into B2B realm and realized we do really like B2B. And then year two was very much the narrowing and the kind of execution mode where that's where we got together with Karsten and all three of us narrowed down to Aristotle's as it is in this form. Yeah, th there was an in-between in idea there. It's not really worth going to, into too much detail, but it was a, a similar kind of marketplace B2B space where we could match service providers with, with the companies that needed services. 
actually, we recently found out that there is a company in Germany that does this, uh, and they've done quite well. So, series A. yeah, they're they're a Series yeah, A there. But anyway, here you are. Yeah, but <laughs> but here we are. We, it, it was the let's say the the beginning of of something that then event, eventually evolved into Stottles, very much informed by our previous experiences and and the specific pains that we had felt in our previous careers. Yeah, so we can't complain. We, I think we've landed on something great. So how do you get a business like this off the ground? I mean, I think it's a bit of a mystery to those who don't know. In, in some senses, it's like a consultancy business. You go out and find somebody who, who wants to bid and then you help them from your past experience to learn what they can bid for. On the other hand, it could be like a platform business where you're, you're really having to create a massive database of opportunities before you're of any interest to any, any client. So there's a kind of a bootstrap model in my mind and and then there's the big platform mm -hmm. before before you can even start to get the first paying customer so wh wh where where is it i mean how did you how did you evolve i mean i'll let john talk about that part but i, I think what there's a previous step to that there's a previous step and that's very mental of being like this is something that is incredibly intimidating and, and a huge issue and you need to mentally just check yourself and say hey look Nobody has figured this out. Nobody really knows what they're doing. We're just going to give this a shot and we're not going to give up, you know, in a week or two weeks when it gets difficult. And I need to give John uh, and Carson a lot of credit. They both are, are extremely strong-willed and, and motivated. And sometimes, I mean, even I, I feel like I was kind of caught up in the in, in the wake of, the, of their pull, you know. So I think that's very much the first step. And I think that's one that trips up a lot of very smart analytical people because they start thinking about, well, XYZ problems, this isn't going to work. Yeah, I'll let John get into the mechanics of, of what we yeah, did in the early days. On that, because that's, that's one of my favorite learnings from the time doing the MBA and, and my career so far to date. But as far as kind of that progression that you talked about from this bootstrappy type of approach into this more platform outcome that we have, that, that actually matches really well and parallels the, the sequencing of how our story has started to develop, where it's very Paul Graham-esque in terms of like doing things that don't scale. At the very beginning, that's exactly what we did. We did everything manually, almost very much bootstrapping by taking a consultancy approach where we actually could generate cash flows up front, but we were doing everything manually and basically just providing spreadsheets of manual simulations of what we envisioned maybe this product or this platform down the road could do, which worked for two, three months. It was painstaking. I mean, I remember digging through these portals that we're now simplifying for our customers and typing in keywords like marketing and getting outcomes like the German government's buying Kleenex and all of a sudden <laughs> you don't know how you got from A to B. But what it taught us were those pains that exactly what our customers down the road are actually running up against. This complete fragmentation, lack of focus, lack of simplicity that makes them want to wash their hands of this whole thing and just walk away. So for us, we took those learnings, rolled those into our first pilot product MVP, which again, so we started in January, released that in March, April. Uh, Karsten built the whole thing front to back and we put it out in the world and it started people wanted to pay for it. And that's when we realized, okay, we've gotten beyond this kind of thing of validating that a pain exists. Now it's how can we solve the pain and what levers can we pull to make sure we can create and capture value down the road. So that's kind of where we're at now is making the transition from that early stage product into this full-on platform that we kind of have been, our customers have been asking for. Yeah, the first customers paid though, did they? Yep, they did. So, I mean, you were uneconomically but that was part of the proof that there was a sufficient pain here that, that people were willing to pay for you to do the, the, the some, some grunt work behind the scenes to actually do this. Exactly. And that's when we realized very much that our experience from the past 
and what the stories we're hearing now create this formula that we can deliver on. And it comes back to Taj's first point, the predecessory kind of like mental shift you have to make internally. And we began to learn this, that nobody on this planet knows what on earth they're doing. And for us, I mean, in that own right, for us, that's not a profound thing. But what is profound when you, is when you begin to accept that. Because then you begin to realize, as we've gotten to see more startups, talk more with VCs, see more world-class, quote-unquote, organizations, you begin to realize that everyone is just making it up as they go. And the ones that look like they have it together are just the ones that, to take a quote of Nike's book, just do it, right? Like, they just take a step. And so that's what us, for us, gives us the confidence to just, when things are chaotic and we don't know what we're doing, we realize nobody else knows. So let's just take one baby step forward and things can come and things can happen. So that's been one huge revelation that's come from the last it's couple of months. just a whole world of people out there who are punching above their weight. <laughs> exactly. As soon as you realize How are they pulling this off? Spin, then, you know, <laughs> if, if anybody can do it, we can do it. Exactly. And, there, and there's stories of that from our prospects and our customers in the market we've talked to, right? Huge multinational corporations who are running these multi-million pound operations on technicolor spreadsheets with color codes all over the place and having two teams in the same company bidding on the exact same work and both losing without having known. I mean, we when we walked in this market, we thought, we're going to be able to serve SMEs because they, they're resource-strapped. They need us. They need Robinhood to come in and help save them. And we started talking to some of these giant multinational corporations, and even they don't have it together. So it's not clear to me how being at the school LBS helps a business like yours. I mean, I see it all the time in B2C. There's all sorts of ways. I mean, very often people are building products for individuals who are, you know, the persona is the same as so many who, who, who are here. So we, we form the customer base. But for a B2B business like yours, I'm, I'm not sure how being here helps. I mean, I'm not sure how I could help. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that, I mean, you can break it down into, into the different aspects of the business. The first one being the team, right? The ability to meet strong co-founders is probably, I mean, unless you go to like a, a world-class accelerator, like a Y Combinator or, or something like that, you're probably not going to have such a concentration of great co-founders anywhere else. And obviously in London, I, I don't, I would argue that LBS is, is the best MBA program. So just from the co-founder perspective, which is probably one of the most critical things when forming a business, this is a great place to be. And even, you know, just finding other team members. One of our most recent hires came through an LBS connection. Crazy story. But just this morning, uh, I was approached by a, a new uh, entrant to the MBA program who was sitting close to me and just asking me what I was working on because, you know, we were talking about the tech and we were talking about hiring. And we got to talking and it turns out she had worked in the in the Canadian government auditing contracts and was looking for an internship. Like, great, okay, here we go. You know, one more person to add to, add to the team and, and, and get some work done. And the fact that I don't need to, you know, sit down and validate her abilities to, to an extreme extent is, is also valuable, right? I don't need to worry about her, her credentials or anything. because yeah, we've, she, done, she's, that. we've done, done that. You've done that, exactly. Yeah. Some poor person in, in admissions has had to spend three hours <laughs> reading her Doing essays. Job, yeah. yeah, so uh, in the team aspect, it's it's huge. On the fundraising aspect, I think it's also huge. I mean, I need to give a shout out to David Morris, who has been absolutely massive in our growth when it comes to job postings, uh, when it comes to introductions to VCs, when it comes to just, you know, just giving us advice. He's been a huge asset. And generally around the school, the ability to get introductions to venture capital, introductions even to advisors, to, to people on the tech side, I can't even put a number on, on how important that is. In terms of education, like for us as founders, you know, understanding how venture capital works, understanding how 
how to structure the, the buildup of a startup. That's also been massive. And even specific tech stuff, actually, Nico Sava gave us some advice on data mining. And I mean, we, we call it AI, but essentially it's data mining, like how we can use the data that we have to get real data-based information and, and insights for our customers. Um, I could list off probably 20 more things, but that's that's just the, the surface of, of how LBS has been uh, fundamental and to I, our growth. I guess there's something in the brand as well. I remember you yeah, yeah, talking to me about Interesting stuff there that hit on the kind of the product and the growth sides. You should kind of get Carson's voice in the room here on, on the product side is being in the MBA and being at LBS um, puts you in London, first off, this hub of tech that's just skyrocketing funding and entrepreneurship that's that's there and it's in this environment. But at the same time, being in the MBA specifically gives us a lot of time, energy to not be in careers. And for Carson, for example, during one of the terms, he went and took a software development boot camp and just learned and then self-taught himself and built our first product from scratch. So having that space, the energy to chase the things that you want to go after is, is vital. And it's it's a bit of a, a soft thing, but it, it's, it was a, a factor of our success. I mean, the, 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 the whole branding, the fact that you are at LBS must be of a... Yeah, absolutely. From from a growth perspective, for example, that's that's helped significantly. I can give a, a quick example of in our early days, in order to first get customer learnings, get a bit of exposure, get some people in the door, we send out kind of these old cold email campaigns uh, where we reference the fact that we were LBS students trying to take this softer student approach and not come across as salesy. And in those, we, we reference, we've got this pilot program we're rolling out. We've got two spots left. I mean, we didn't have any prescribed amount of number of spots we were trying to fill. Just to create a little exclusivity, work with the LBS brand. And normal email campaigns, cold email campaigns, get probably, I mean, 1% response rates if you're lucky. Um, we got 13 to 14% response rates on these cold emails that brought fruitful conversations, learnings. We talked to over like 200, 300 different contacts and companies, and those ended up being our very first customers. So having that stamp of approval on uh, from kind of the LBS brand really opened a lot of doors in ways that we didn't really expect. Yeah, so I think we might get onto the, the, the whole seed camp side of things now, because it seems to me that it's not just about London Business School, it's about London. And I'm interested in the extent to which you've plugged into the, the city as opposed to to this walled garden. Yeah, I think I think it's also worth mentioning like that there's a lot of second degree things that come from LBS and being in London, right? So a good example I can think of is one of the introductions that we got from Seed Camp is actually from the husband of a classmate from our class. We got two introductions actually one was David Morris and one was that way. And then also the partner of one of our classmates also introduced us to a ton of other founders that had been at Seed Camp. So these are the type of like almost intangible things that LBS brings that, you know, individually they might not sound that impressive, but altogether, you know, they make all the difference. Mm. Um, and you spoke specifically of Seed Camp. I mean, this has been a big, yeah. a big step for you, hasn't it? Definitely. It was one of those, you know, defining moments for us because we, we got the invitation to the pitch. It's, it's two different days where you first pitch to the partners and then you pitch to the LPs actually. And... At the same time, we had been accepted into a, into a great accelerator here in London, and we had to make the decision, do we take this accelerator or do we you know, gamble a little bit and, and see how it goes with Seed Camp a couple weeks later? In the end, we decided to gamble just because you know the accelerator wasn't quite the right fit for us because it was a little bit too early stage compared to where we were as a business. Um, and we went to Seed Camp. We had this amazing experience where we, we pitched on the Wednesday, uh, actually on the Thursday 
we had capstone. I, I had to do the speech for the class, so it was a little bit of a stressful time <laughs> for me. And then on Friday, we got invited to, to the LP pitch, and then we immediately ran to our graduation. So a bit of a Cinderella story, but it was it was exciting. Yeah, we couldn't have, we couldn't have scripted it for ourselves better in terms of just like the outcome and really truly what we wanted out of the NBA. We all came here to start something, right? And for it to land on the graduation date was kind of just... Poetic. And, yeah, very poetic, yeah. And, and I remember that... Uh, it's funny you mentioned that story about uh, that fork in the road on... We had pre-seed money sitting on the table through this accelerator program, and we knew seed camp was a potential option down the road, but it was anything but certain. I remember that call we had. We were all spread around the world. I was in Lisbon in this town square. Uh, it was like 11 p.m. I don't know where you guys were. I was driving. Yeah, uh, you were driving. There were guys walking up to me offering me drugs, and I'm on this call, like one of the most pivotal calls that we've kind of had in this fork in the road. And we said, look, we're not in this to play it safe. Like I, I personally am, am a believer of this kind of mantra. Of like the more things you have, the more stuff you have, this, the scarier you live. And for us, kind of realizing that like we're not on this path of recruitment or um, certain job security. Like we've got this thing that we're building and we have nothing to lose. Let's do it. Let's go all out. And that call was the night where we were like, let's do it. Let's move forward, and I guess so hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah, we, we were able we, to move forward with that round. Yeah, we had a couple of weeks of like very heavy preparation while everyone's you know traveling around, gallivanting around the world. Yeah. Um, even on like, what's the week? Uh, the disorientation track, all these type of things were going on. You know, we were a lot more low key because we were preparing. Uh, three of us went to a friend's wedding in in Bulgaria, and you know while everyone's out having fun in a room working on working on the business, so yeah. and preparing for seed camp. So it. it it was a stressful but exciting time for us, and luckily it all worked out. Wouldn't trade it for anything. Mm. How have you funded all this, and how are you going to fund it all? I mean, is this customer funded from day one? I mean, it doesn't sound like it is, especially in terms of your own time. So how's how's that all working? Yeah, I mean, before our first closing our pre-seed round, fully customer funded. Uh, we I mentioned that kind of consultancy type approach we took at the beginning, uh, brought some cash in early there, then rolled out our pilot product and started charging subscriptions, um, all with bootstrapped kind of product approach. And then when we hit the point where we realized, look, we can begin to automate this more, we can begin to improve this based on what our customers are saying, that's when we realized, oh gosh, like we could go pedal the metal and really bring some value to this market here and, and, and go after it. So that's where we really started to getting around the discussion of should we bring in some external capital. But prior to that time, it was fully sweating. I mean, this is very different from, again, from many of the businesses we, we see here who come in thinking, I need all this money to do, to conquer the world, and I've got to do it fast. You've almost come from the soft product, the consulting, and it's only as you've you've realised the potential, and as you the word you used earlier, the intrigue of, of this market, that the full potential of this and what you could achieve has, has grown on you. It's the other way around. Yeah, I, th- I think a big element to this is because the space is nothing is is not that compelling to to you know the everyday person because. We had to demonstrate compelling traction before anybody would take this business seriously. And that goes for everything from, uh, you know, people were telling about it to VCs. Because VCs are, you know, they're excited by the next blockchain jewel, whatever thing, you know. Um, They're not thinking about government, right? So the fact that we could show quick traction with with customers uh, was something that, you know, gave us a leg up when we were having these conversations. And as, yeah, and as far as approach and philosophy, I mean, we, us three as co-founders are, are relatively low key and, and love this idea of kind of 
what does it take to build a long-term sustaining business? Like really the North star, in my opinion, should never be get funded. The North star should be find something and fix it. And, and for us, we've, think we've found something and we think we're moving towards fixing it or continually working on it every day. But at the point when you're focused on the finding and fixing versus getting the money, that's when you begin to realize, okay, you need capital for X, Y, Z reasons. And you're a lot more deliberate about it. Uh, and, and there's a, there's a solid reason for doing it. Yeah. So you know what you're going to spend the money on yeah, now exactly. having started soft and then only mm-hmm. working to hard later. And do you give a thought to, you know, you're not definitely not a social enterprise, and yet, you know, public good through private interest, and and you're pursuing private interest. But have you got a sense of of the the the, the scale of the waste that there is at the moment, and and the social good that might come from this, just in terms of cleaning stuff up and and making things less fragmented and and more of a marketplace. Yeah, I mean, we I can give you the first line from our pitch deck. It's 77% of all spend goes to 1% of suppliers. And in the UK, you've got 284 billion flowing from public sector to, to private sector as well. So the scale is significant and the concentration is significant. And, and you equate concentration with inefficiency? Yeah, and, and, and then on the government <laughs> side, lack of competition, right? Um, there's lack of accountability in that all of a sudden and this is kind of what gets us up in the morning, is, is if you begin to deconcentrate that, spread more of that spend to more players, to more owner-operated businesses, closely held businesses, all of a sudden you're spreading spend into their pockets. And all of a sudden you're flowing more dollars into more people across the UK, across the EU, across the world. So I think for us as a business, we see, and like I mentioned, the very first thing I said, our North Star is to build a world where business and government are working better together. We're not on this planet to build a public procurement sales intelligence platform. We're here to build a world where business and government are working better together because we see that social impact of of making this available to more people and making the information at their fingertips. Yeah, and it goes back to the to the examples we gave of like the Carillion's Interserve Seaborne Freight. You're talking about millions and millions of taxpayer pounds that are going to companies that don't know what to do with it, right? And the companies that are winning some of these contracts are not the ones that are the best for the job. It's the ones that have figured out how to navigate this murky world. They have the relationships and they understand the processes. They're not necessarily the best for the job. And when John says business and government working better together, that means the best company for the job should win every single time, regardless of their relationships, regardless of their knowledge of, you know, the minutia of, of the process, right? Oh, you know, you forgot to put your the background on your CEO in, in the bid, so we're not going to give it to you. That's, uh, excuse my, my swearing, but it's a BS reason for them not to win the contract. Uh, like a, a process-driven arbitrage that all these big big companies have exactly, come off of. Exactly, and, and by creating transparency into this world and making it accessible for any company that wants to, you're creating a competitive environment where your tax dollar goes as far as it possibly can. And I keep saying tax dollar, I should say tax pound. It just sounds weird. <laughs> the, so, I mean... If, for example, in in Westminster Council, someone needs to buy bricks, those bricks should not necessarily come from the the massive company that has been providing bricks to Westminster Council for the last hundred years. It should be to the highest quality, best priced, regardless of who that's from. Have you had any feedback from the procurers themselves? Because I can see how this, I can see how it can save money. 
because the brick is coming from mm-hmm. the best brick manufacturer, yeah. uh, not not the legacy one. So I can see that. I can see it's wonderful for the most efficient brick supplier, but I can see that you might be a right pain in the backside for the for the individuals who are actually doing the procuring, because all of a sudden you're you're, you're giving them far more choice and therefore far more work. True, yeah, but then all, with that uh, burden also comes opportunity as well. The way we see it, and we've kind of heard inklings of this in the market and based on our experience in the past, is that basically government buyers are vetting all these suppliers. What's to say that now we've not got this giant pool of suppliers on our tool, on our platform, call it whatever you want, and all of a sudden we've got the quality criteria or the performance of these suppliers in the past. We've got access to quick credit ratings, all the things that these government buyers have been doing procedurally and manually in the past and suffering through and suffering by their own by their own admission yeah now can happen at a click of a button so those are things we have thought about and explored down the road and heard kind of bread or seen breadcrumbs of uh potential opportunities after we kind of get the full understanding and are able to solve the pains of the supplier side getting the government and using our intelligence basically almost government's own Mm -hmm. data just useful for them there's a lot of opportunity yeah if 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 i if i had to boil it down it would be like those processes that are a burden for the private companies are also a burden for the buyers. And as soon as you start solving those problems, they're just as thankful for that. And we have actually heard from, from one of our advisors actually through SeedCamp has a lot of experience in the in the public space. He, correct me if I'm wrong, John, he led the uh, SME inclusion initiatives from uh, the UK government. Yeah, in the, in the cabinet office. The cabinet office. And he's probably one of our biggest champions because he's he understands exactly what the buyers have to go through, and he understands the scale of the problem. So, yeah, hopefully the buyers will also uh, get some benefit from this. That's the point. So where are you in a year's time? I mean, clearly you're, you're going for the incubator, which gives you a nice warm, mm-hmm. warm place to grow from. Mm-hmm. But where do you see yourself in a, in a year's time? In a year's time, I mean, there's multiple dimensions of this, but I'll go kind of go broad to narrow. Broadly, we want to be positioned in this market where we're an advocate for as many businesses that are operating and trying to get in the public sector as possible and bringing that knowledge as efficiently and quickly to their fingertips as possible. What that looks like moving more specifically is from a product perspective, for example, moving from our pilot MVP product onto our first full-scale web app that we'll be rolling out and making that a bit more automated and tuned so that we can actually handle capacity one of the things that we see so often and hear in the news is that everyone is fully automated and running AI and everything. More and more we've learned that means nothing. Really what it means is just a little bit of maybe an Excel formula or a little bit of code that's running if-then statements. For us, we're really just trying to figure out very acutely what our customers' pains are, how we can deliver on it with a product and be so perfect in delivering on that that they have nowhere else to turn because we are their advocate and we bring the information to the surface. And then on the funding side, you're going to need money to do this. Yeah. So on the fundraising side, we're in a very good position right now. We have a good amount of runway, but we anticipate that, you know, as traction increases, as we get enough interest and we want to serve all of these customers, we're going to have to ramp up on the team. And, you know, getting the best people is not cheap. So we expect we'd probably need a a seed round in about a year's time. Well, best of luck to both of you. It's a marvellous story from humble beginnings within a year, so we'll be following. Absolutely. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, enjoyed the writing. Look forward to what's ahead. 